Hello, and welcome to AUA, short for An Unknown Adventure, episode number 22. So I had a very challenging week. I was fighting depression and insomnia, but I did spend a lot of time playing the video game Ghosts of Tsushima on my PlayStation 4, and that was a lot of fun. I also went to quite a few 12-step meetings, both online and in person, I reconnected with Nora Dunn, who I met probably 12 years ago in Hawaii when she was exchanging work for room and board at a youth hostel that I was staying at. I'm going to be hiring Nora for some consulting, and she's also starting classes, which I can't wait to take. When I first met her, she was just beginning her nomad journey, which lasted 12 years. She truly has been one of my top inspirations for my upcoming lifestyle, and I'll link to her and all of her information in the show notes. On this episode of AUA, I talked to Christina. I cannot pronounce her last name unless she says it, and then I say it right after her because it's Greek. But she's a U.S. travel entrepreneur who focuses on helping women with her business partner, Nectaria, who still lives in Greece. Their main business has a very clever name called Shafari, and they also help people travel to Greece where Christina lived for a long time. I got to talk to her about her business and her travels, including island recommendations. And now, on to the show. If you can go ahead and introduce yourself for the people who are listening, that would be great. Sure. Absolutely. So my name is Christina Papavlasopoulos. I am the co-founder of Shafari. It's the first marketplace for women's travel. So we have everything from unique retreats to group adventures. And I also co-founded Myths and Muses, which is a boutique destination specialist, essentially creating distinctive experiences in Greece. So through both our brands, myself and my co-founder, Nectaria, we're basically seeking to reimagine the travel experience through bringing connection to the heart of each trip. Okay. Now, what did you say the first one, the Shafari does? Shafari were essentially the first marketplace for small group travel for women. This was an idea that we had, and it was something we put into place, of course, pre-pandemic. And then a lot of the amazing women that run trips fell off. So the marketplace is looking a little lean right now, (laughs) but we are revamping and we're going to relaunch hopefully in May with some tentative trips for fall of 21 and beyond into spring 22. But essentially we wanna bring together the best of the best in women's travel. So I have an amazing partner, Jackie, who runs these incredible retreats in Greece. Carol runs these culinary trips in the Amalfi Coast and in Burgundy. We have so many women, we've got running tours and bicycle, incredible treks to Patagonia. So the idea is it's really hard. It's a very fragmented market, the women's travel market. And we're trying to bring it together and put all these great trips in one place so that women can find them. And they can sort through them on our website. We have different categories and styles. So there's She Restores is more wellness. There's She Praises Spiritual. She Discovers is kind of more adventure. So there's She Indulges, lots of different things for different ladies. Mm-hmm. And then is it like a group of a certain amount of people and whoever you're working with figures out the daily itinerary and that that kind of thing, like a tour? Exactly. These are essentially tours. Some are more retreats. So there's a more transformational aspect to them. 
they can speak to women going through specific things. Some are business coaches. It depends. But the gist of it is that every single trip is a group tour built around the essence of connecting women through that trip. So they all come, some bring buddies and friends, but essentially it's individual spots that we sell to to bring women together on these tours all over the world with all these different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds great. I have a friend who did that, a patient who did that for Thailand because she didn't feel comfortable going by herself and she'd never really traveled overseas by herself. So she went through, and I can't remember the woman's name, but she loved it. She was like, it was the best trip I've ever taken in my life. It's very interesting. We actually have, a, a, we call them our shafari signatures. Those are trips that our company is creating and leading. And the rest are, we say the, mar- the marketplace trips are, are trips that we are helping to promote for other incredible companies that we partner with. But so one of the shafari signatures that we've developed and are leading is in Thailand. So we're doing Thailand, Egypt, Greece, we do very well. I lived in Greece for 10 years. My partner's still based in Greece. So we obviously with the, with the Myths and Muses as well, the Greece travel company, we do a lot in Greece. So that was definitely a no brainer for us to do a shafari there. Yeah. And I'm going to ask you a lot about that later. I read through everything that you wrote about how women are really concerned about safety when they travel. And so for me, what it brings up is I really want to go to Morocco. That's like number, like one on my top 10 list, but there's no way I would ever, and I'm a solo female traveler, and there's no way I would ever go to Morocco by myself. So I would think like Egypt to me is a little bit scary. And truth be told, like there's places in South America that I'm like, I want to go, but I'm not going by myself. I'm just not, I don't feel comfortable. Yeah, I think there's... It's a big conversation. We could have a whole podcast just on on that topic and breaking that down. I think there are some places that get a bad, a little bit of a bad rap, but I also think that there is some truth to when women say I can do anything and you do have to be wary of your safety. And unfortunately, by being a woman anywhere you go in the world, even in your own city, there are certain safety precautions you should always take. But the, the good thing about the trips that we lead and that many people lead is we do try to have these journeys in places that women might not feel comfortable going to alone. For example, in Egypt, although we tell everything through a very female lens and we try to incorporate as many female vendors as possible, we do have a male tour guide escorting us just for the safety, for the translation. In certain countries, it's more advantageous and advantageous to go about it that way. Yeah. But it's, yeah, the solo female travel experience is evolving as it's so much easier to go everywhere. And I give so much credit to within that trek the world entirely on their own. That's kind of why we partnered. We partnered with Solo Female Travelers uh, Club. It's a Facebook group. It's a community of over 75,000 women ran by two fabulous ladies, Mar and Meg. And essentially we created this survey, the first ever global survey for solo female travelers. We had about, we had a little over 5,000 respondents for it from all, yeah, from all over the world. And we asked everything, their preferences, what would they want the tour industry and the travel industry to know about? What fears and motivations do they have? Where do they want to go? How do they want to do it? What really bothers them? So it was an awesome opportunity for us as a tour company and as a focused marketplace to understand all of that behind it. And I, 72% say that safety was their main concern and everything from sometimes housekeeping might knock on the door and that sort of thing. They just want to know beforehand. It's 
really great to have a little preface. Hey, this person is a woman staying alone. Be cognizant of that because she's in a, in a different place than other people. And you said that surprised you, the safety? I, it's, I understand it as a motivation. I think it surprised me from a standpoint of is that's what held women back from traveling. I understand it's a concern, but it was noted as a reason why many don't travel. And it's like, their biggest concern out of anything, no matter where they go, even if they, there are certainly countries as we've discussed that are maybe perhaps more friendly for solo female travelers. I'm blessed to be an American woman, an entrepreneur, a mother. There's certain things that I take for granted in my daily life that there are a lot of women that their families don't support them going. They're shamed in their culture. There's a lot of disapproval around it. And they're fearful from the flack that they'll get locally, as well as they're fearful of what they'll see in the country they're going to. So there were, I I was surprised it was that high, that many uh, women really are fearful of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it seems to be like the number one question I'm getting and the number one concern that my friends are having is my safety definitely up there. And that's why we all wanted to take everyone who worked on this and everyone in the industry wants to take something from this amazing survey and this report and improve our offering to solo female travelers, improve the tourism business at large. But I think what the gals are going to do at solo female travelers is they want to create some safety standards and some training so that be it hotels or, or destinations at large can have some understanding of where the psychology is of the solo female traveler and and help alleviate some of those safety concerns just by having staff properly trained in certain things. I think that could go a long way. So they're building an initiative toward that, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. That's really a great idea. Yeah, there's a lot of, and it's like you said, this is could be a whole different episode, but males that don't understand the fear that we live in every single day. And then they're surprised when they find out. (laughs) Right. Well, I was, it was funny. We were walking. I have a a son who's just over a year old and my husband and I were walking and he's like, man, we're going to get, my husband is from Greece, which is also why when I lived there, we met there and everything. So we were walking our son and he's like, man, I miss the good old days. Like me and my buddies, we'd grab a gyro, a souvlaki. We'd be out in the park till one, two in the morning. And I'm like, yeah, I, as a young woman, never was in a dark park at one or two in the morning. It was such a, a glaring, yeah, being a, a, a woman, being a young girl, there's, there were certain things that we didn't do in the safe suburbs. So I can only imagine in other parts of the world. I mean, it's so important when we're looking at gender, when we're looking at race, you realize that you've experienced things just through your own perspective. And sometimes when you're sharing stories and someone goes, wait, yeah, that would never fly for me. You go, oh my goodness. And that's what it is. It's just, I don't want to say ignorance because that gets a bad rap, but it's just education. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So what brought you to Greece in the first place? So I studied, I'm originally from the Ohio area, but I've lived in about, I think, 14 different places, (laughs) moved around a lot as a child. So I'm very used to, I think that lent itself for me. I studied abroad in Italy. I really loved travel. I did a study tour in London and Paris. So I, I really enjoyed traveling at a young age. I studied fashion and I had an opportunity to work for a wholesale company in Athens, Greece, and immediately jumped on it, did everything I could. I, I got my Rosetta Stone. I tried to learn Greek from my friends. So I very quickly, as as much as 
a blonde American in Greece cannot stick out, but I tried to acclimate as much as I could and learn the ropes and the culture of living there. And I met my, my best friend and now business partner, Nectaria at that fashion company. And we realized very quickly, we had complementary kind of skills and interests as both as a friendship and as a partnership. And we decided what we loved and were passionate about the Greek culture and about traveling and about bringing women together is how we contrived this idea for Shafari. So we began with Shafari as our company. We launched that in uh, 2015 as like bespoke travel planning. And we thought, okay, we'll put this together for women. We'll put together these women's trips of, of groups of women, be it friends, maybe girlfriends, bachelorette trips, family members that wanted to travel together. And we quickly realized there was a huge demand for these join-in trips where there were the solo female travelers or just any kind of woman. I think there's a, a misnomer about that, that it's all single women. There are a lot of women who are married, have children, have very busy lives, but they just want to get out and take some time for themselves. They need that disconnect. And I'm realizing very quickly as a mother that when you leave the house, it's not about you. You're getting everyone else ready. And I'm, I have a feeling that's going to cross over into our vacations when we are able to travel again, that it'll be, okay, where does everybody want to go? What do they want to do? And a shafari is meant to work on yourself, to take time for yourself and restore yourself in whatever capacity that is for you. So I think that's where we saw it going and why we wanted to do what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And so did, is that why you stayed in Greece for 10 years? So we were in Greece. Yes. While I had Shafari, I was there an extra three years after we started, I was in Greece. And then I decided once I got married and I wanted to start a family, I wanted to be close to my family again, which is based here in the States. But we quickly realized that with my business partner being there and myself being here, it worked itself out well to to us being in both places. And I was really able, we started this while I was overseas with a main target of an American kind of clientele. We do cater to women all over the globe, but we were seeing by being American and that's where our channels were, that's who we were trying to cater to for Shafari. So I think being here and being able to network and be in front of people and and connect with people in the States, it really helped our customer base there. Mm -hmm. And were you in Athens the whole time? I was in Athens, but I had the privilege of traveling quite a bit. I think I've been to 11 Greek islands and a lot of, yeah, I've, I think I've, when I talk to some of my Greek friends, they're like, you've been to more islands than I have. And it's just a little bit of that expat mentality, right? Like sometimes when you're visiting a place, you want to see as much as you can, because it's a fleeting moment in your life. Whereas the Greeks are like, oh, I'll see it next year or next year. And a lot of Greeks vacation to their village or their hometown, whereas we would pick a new destination each time. So it really got me to see all the Greek islands and it was just so beautiful. It made me all that more confident in the fact that I wanted to get into travel and I wanted to share this with people, everything from cultural things I was learning to off the beaten path places I was going to. Mm-hmm. And do you have a favorite? Oh boy, that's a tough question. I have different favorites for different things, depending on where I've gone and where it's for. I love islands like Naxos and Paros, which are lesser known Cycladic islands. I love the island of Crete because there's literally something for everybody. It has amazing kind of 
city life and beautiful outdoor bars and they make great cocktails and it's Hanya is a really cool place. But then they have these villages where they have such unique cuisine and make their own cheeses and farms. And so there's so many things to see. And I would say my favorite beaches in Greece are in Kefalonia. My good friend Maria studied there and had a good kind of social circle there. So we went there and the West side, I think has the most incredible water in pretty much all of the world, which is hard now because I live in Florida and everyone's, oh, the beaches. I'm like, you haven't seen anything. You got to get to Greece. Right. Yeah. And did you feel safe there? I did. I actually, I felt safer in Athens because I think it's, I typically lived in like more residential areas. It was very kind of family oriented. I don't know. I just, I felt very safe in Athens more so than I did when I lived in New York city, to be honest. Yeah. I, I think Athens is the neighborhoods I was in. Athens certainly has some different areas that I would recommend to stay away from as do all urban centers. Mm -hmm. But I was lucky that the parts of Athens I lived in, and I think Greece in general is an extremely safe place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's actually number one on my bucket list. So <laughs> that's why I'm like asking about it. Absolutely. It's so fantastic. I mean, there's there's something for everyone and everything. And that's why I love it. It's like when I get a new client, it's okay, what are it's a honeymoon, it's their food and wine lovers, they're this, they're single, they're old, they're young. There's literally something for everyone at every stage and activity level. You can just park it at the most beautiful remote place and just have the best week or two weeks of your life. And you can go in winter too. There's amazing places in the mainland that really lend itself to fall and winter. Old bridges, beautiful fall foliage, mountains and gorges that, yeah. Elizabeth Gilbert actually said when she visited the Zagori region of Greece, that it was her favorite it was the most beautiful place she'd ever been to on earth. And that's saying a lot for Elizabeth Gilbert, who's been everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's great. That's super cool. Yeah. Barcelona was my number one and Greece was my number two. And then I went to Barcelona and I was like, eh, cause I had such high expectations. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I think an important element to anywhere you go is trying to get, and I know that's such a catch word in travel to say authentic experiences, but it really is. If you can go to places where where they live and interact with the local residents, and if you can catch things that aren't so built up for tourism and try to find the restaurants down the alley that isn't super advertised and they might not have an English menu, that's where you're going to do really well for yourself. And you can still do Mykonos and Santorini, which are beautiful islands, in a little bit more of an authentic way. Because so many people their first time want to hit the most popular islands. So we try to provide at least one island that they've never heard of, maybe Syros or Naxos or something like that, and then combine that with the other ones and just try to put experiences that they never imagined would be possible. Yeah, that's smart. That's a good idea. I was just, I just had Peros on my, I don't know how you pronounce it, but I had it on my list because I just saw the, the pictures on Instagram. I was like, where's this? Because I like the white houses and stuff that you see mostly from pictures of Santorini. So exactly the Kikladic cluster of islands. So that would be all of the ones, or I say it in a Greek English hybrid or Cycladics. People say it different ways. Those are Mykonos, Santorini, Paros, Naxos, Tinos is another beautiful island in that cluster. And there's so many in that area and even lesser known ones that are really beautiful to visit. And they all have the whitewashed with the blue domes and very 
you know, charming alleyways. And then as you get into different places, they might, the Eonians a bit greener. Some places north use a lot more stone and it just looks like this beautiful old mountain village. So there's a lot of really diverse scenery that I think isn't as captured as those main places, but there's so many great things to see. Wow, that's so cool. And do you miss it? Oh, yes. (laughs) We haven't been back. Our goal, my husband and my goal was to go back every year at least. And we were going to go back last year, which obviously last summer didn't happen for us. So yeah, we're chomping at the bit to get back. And I think it's just, I just miss a great Greek coffee. I miss the relaxed way of life, just sitting and having a coffee and relaxing outside of a really cute, quaint shop. And my friends and I, especially the Greek Americans, were always back and forth about like, where would you rather live? And there's so many great aspects to life in either place. It's hard to do, but I do miss a lot about Greece. Yeah. Yeah. Aw. Yeah. I was supposed to go last October. I'd booked like Portugal and Greece, but obviously, yeah, didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. So did you say that you also have like products, like travel products? We, our actual trips, the Shafari signatures are what we have right now, the actual trip that they'll take. So those are our own. And then when we say the marketplace, it's really just means that it's a place for women to join in with other travel companies on their trips. But we have a few travel passports that we've made and we've done a few things with swag. So I think as our brand builds, we definitely want to fill that because I think a lot of people are interested in some cool, cool travel swag and products. That's definitely something we want to do. But we just, to start, we want to just connect women with incredible trips that they might not have heard about. And then likewise, helping those trip leaders fill their trips, which are the hardest thing the hardest part about it. You just have so much of your time spent on marketing and trying to get the word out. Yeah. Yeah. I have a friend who does what she was doing yoga retreats every year and leading them. She's a yoga instructor. And I kept saying, I'm going to sign up for your Morocco one. I didn't. And then COVID happened, but she has to wait until she gets a certain amount of people before she can actually do it. But she's gone to Cuba and Morocco Oh, wow. Those are great places. Yeah. It's tricky because the pricing is often on a group thing. So you take the chicken and the egg, the cart before the horse. You want to know how many people are going before you can price it, but you have to start selling before how many people are going. So it can be a tricky business, which is why we also say to make sure you wait till your trip is fully confirmed to buy airfare because we have to make sure that there's enough interest. It's hard to go with too small of a group, but yeah, it's, and again, since selling is one of the hardest things, that's why we thought the marketplace would be a great you know, solution for people all over the world to find trips that fit them. Yeah, yeah, totally. And everybody wants to go somewhere different. And then I, I don't really know what bespoke means. What does it mean? <laughs> a customized, tailored, bespoke is a very kind of catchword in travel. Basically just bu- built for you, designed from zero. You consult and then they create a journey for you. So we do bespoke travel for Greece. So pretty much whatever they're interested in, we listen to what the clients are seeking and we give them our, their own itinerary that we would suggest and, and work with them along the way to develop the trip that would make the most sense for them. So it's like travel agent in, for that one-ish. Yes, except for the fact that for Greece, we work both with direct clients, but because we have such great relationships throughout Greece, we can also help serve travel advisors with that. 
So we're essentially a supplier to travel advisors, but we also do handle direct client requests. We do a lot of destination weddings in Greece. So the wedding planner will want to handle the event, but they don't want to handle all of the extra. You've got 40, 50 or more people coming from out of country. Where are they going to stay? What are the logistics? And then they also want to have recommendations where to travel after because they came all that way. They're doing a vacation out of it. So we help with all of those details. Same thing with, we, we actually help a lot of yoga retreat leaders in Greece or any kind of retreat leaders, coaches, all different types of people who want to do retreats. And we really try to come up with unique retreat concepts and unique activities that actually echo their theme. So any retreat that we put on and help a leader create, in addition to trying, trying to negotiating on their behalf and helping them get the best rates and the best cancellation terms and payment plans, we actually think about, okay, this is a business retreat. So we talk about how social media and the idea of kind of idea sharing actually originated in ancient Athens and the ancient Gora there and how business kind of that idea started there and marketing was an ancient Greek concept. So we do things that the retreats that we create for our clients would be different anywhere else. They're uniquely Greek. Wow, that's great. And so you, do you speak Greek fluently now? Huh. Uh, I I, <laughs> I try. Yeah, no, I probably have a horrible accent, but I can get by. So yes. yeah. And are you teaching your, is your husband teaching your son Greek? Yes, yes. It's very important to us because my in-laws, his parents um, only speak Greek. A few English words here and there, but it's important for me that they have that strong relationship with him and communicate, but really as well as just him having that culture and they say being multilingual is helpful for brain development. And I think, I think it's great overall. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you learn? What did you find the best route for learning Greek was just immersion living there? You said Rosetta Stone. Yeah. For myself, I have a knack for languages. I can pick them up pretty quickly. I grew up speaking a little German. I learned a little bit of Italy when I was living there. I just, for me, it was definitely immersion and having very helpful patient friends that would translate and explain things. But it was definitely a daily effort for me, reading through things, passing signs and trying to understand the alphabet and sounding them out. Just really listening in on conversations and trying to understand. And I think the most important part that a lot of people are afraid to do is just to start speaking it. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to flop, be it grammar wise or whatever. But, and I've made some hilarious faux pas in Greek that I've said horrible, disgusting things when I meant another word, because one vowel is different or even the accent is different. I was at a friend's and they literally spit out their Easter dinner because I said, something sexual that I had no intention of saying, but I took the risk. I try to speak. I try to say it. And there's, yeah, I definitely think I could write a book about that alone, but yeah, you just try to do it. And then with our son, we're trying to do the one parent, one language approach. So I'm trying to speak exclusively English to him, except when he hears me talk, obviously to my in-laws or anybody in Greece. And then my husband tries to speak exclusively Greek to him and point out objects and that sort of thing, which is hard to do because I think the burden falls on my husband because all of us around him are speaking English. But so far he's starting to understand things and he can decipher the difference a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think that's amazing. I think it's really important. I have a patient who's Turkish and she has two kids and she's mostly 
the kids are mostly with her and not her husband. And she speaks only Turkish to them, but they both speak Turkish and English. Yeah. Just from hearing the English in school and all around, and they think it's their own secret little language. That's something you have to be careful with when you think it's your own secret little language, really how many people speak Greek. Yeah, it's not a lot of people around the world. So be careful who you're talking smack about. You see some, I don't know, some pale redheaded man in an elevator in, I don't know, Sweden. Yeah, he spoke Greek and knew what we said. (laughs) Ah, that's funny. So you have to, yeah, there have been times where I get a head turn or, or of course, I think it's more done to me where they hear us speaking fluent American English. I don't look maybe Greek and uh, they'll start saying some suggestive things to which my friends and I will turn around and let them know we understood it all. Yeah. <laughs> it's a smaller world than we think in so many ways. Yeah, that's true. I really want to move to Portugal. So today I was like, I need to just start learning Portuguese. And even if it's just a couple words a day, five minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, just to get my head wrapped around the idea of it. Mm -hmm. And another thing I did, because I wanted to watch TV, was I just watched TV with English subtitles or reverse in Greece. They don't don't dub a lot just because it's not as big of a population as, say, German, where they would dub it over in German. So they would have English shows with Greek subtitles. So I was reading it in Greek as I was hearing the English and just daily things like that, things to exercise your mind, both in verbal and and written, I think can help you tremendously. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just terrible at languages. Like I'm so bad. I've tried to learn so many languages and I've failed over and over again, but I've never had the immersion. That could definitely help you. Maybe you just got to pack up and go to Portugal and try it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to in like two to three years. Yeah. That's my, that's the plan or travel through Europe anyway. But yeah, I get frustrated. My sister is fluent in five languages and. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 And that's her thing. She just, she can pick up a language in two months Wow. and, and be fluent. Yeah. Yeah. And she's always been that way. I I don't think I could do two months, but yeah, I I would say I'm definitely, I probably have it easier than others because I met other expats who were married to Greeks and they said, I've been here 25 years and I haven't picked up as much as you. It was a daily effort. You have to invest the time and energy into it, but you also have to love it and just, you just have to feel it. I don't know. It's like people who can just pick up music or just do it by the way the notes would, without reading, it just is the way it's supposed to sound. I feel like that's Greek for me. Like sometimes I'll hear phrases or I'll, I'll repeat phrases that I wasn't necessarily taught that exact phrase, but I know the essence of it just because of what I'm hearing. So <laughs> hopefully I'm using it right. And I think like for me, it's really important if you live in another country to know the language or to make the effort to know the language or to learn the language. I don't like li- like being an American and living in France and never learning French. Like that doesn't feel right to me. That's an excellent point. And I think often they just appreciate the effort, be it in business or just popping into your local market to pick something up. They appreciate that you're trying to work your way through it. Yeah, I definitely think that helped us a lot in business. My partner, Nectaria, is Greek-American. Greek Armenian American actually. So she grew up speaking fluent in Armenian. She's like your sister. Armenian, Italian, French, Greek, and English. Ah. <laughs> she's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Uh. And so she's fluent and can speak 
to our vendors and our colleagues in Greece, but I try and they appreciate that. And they're like, oh, okay, you can speak a little Greek. I have a Greek name, Christina. They're like, okay, you're cool. You're one of us. I'll give you a good deal. <laughs> That's funny. Now you have a Greek last name, which I could not pronounce. Yeah. Papa Vlasopoulos. Yes. Wait, one more time. Papa Vlasopoulos. Papa Vlasopoulos. Yeah. Look at you. Very good. <laughs> I'm good. At, I'm a good imitator. I can imitate. Like I can hear. It's weird. Like I can imitate almost every accent. German's hard for me, but almost every accent. That just repeat Portuguese phrases that you hear. You'll be great in no time. When I, I was taking, because I wanted to live in Italy for a while, I have a, a, a friend slash lover uh, there. So I... <laughs> <laughs> so, so I had a, and, and I was going there every year and I just love the mm -hmm. I just love the country so I was trying to learn Italian and I had a teacher here in California and I was going every week and she was like I am and she's Italian she's I'm so disappointed in you because you never study you don't practice you're not getting any better but you have a flawless accent and all my other <laughs> students they study, they learn, they do everything I say, and their accents are terrible. It's not fair. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> <Like>, sorry. <laughs> That's funny. Hey, you use that to your advantage, right? I know. I was just, because when I was just listening to Portuguese, I was like, oh, it is like Spanish. My sister's, it's just like Spanish. I'm like, no, it's not. And then I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. And, and my, I have a friend who's, <laughs> she's Argentinian. But her mom is Italian or was Italian. And so she speaks Italian and English and Spanish. And now she's learning French. <laughs> and she's, oh, wow. yeah. And she's also taking Italian because she's forgotten a lot. And mm -hmm. I'm like, you're taking two languages at once. And she goes, yeah, it's good for brain plasticity. <laughs> and I'm like, that's awesome. I think my brain is, is pl plastic, plasticized enough. I'm like melting here with this. Totally. <laughs> Trying to be a parent and work through a pandemic. Is yeah. yeah. But at least you get to be home with your son. Not that you wouldn't otherwise if you work from home, but. Yes. No, it's awesome. I've been able to spend incredible quality time with him, which especially in his first year, I'm really glad I got to do that. So silver linings, I got to work on my business instead of working in it daily. We really strategized and pivoted quite a bit. So we've been making the best of it, we'll say. Yeah. And that was going to lead me into challenges. And you did mention your biggest failure. And I was going to ask about failure. Yes. What did I say was my biggest failure? <laughs> uh, not focusing on the correct profitability model when you began and not knowing the important networking was for personal growth. So I would say... Oof, Yes. When I started, I feel like we just wanted to do this kind of travel agency concept. It was really about the idea of it. And we had a business plan and we had a concept, but I feel like once my son was born, I realized how valuable my, my time was and how, if I was going to take time away from him and take time to help provide for him, that I had to be really smart. I had the old adage, but it's so true. Work smarter, not harder. So I realized when I was more in the travel planner realm that I was just doing a lot of trips for people, a lot of itineraries, a lot of proposals, some were or weren't coming to fruition. It, it, it just, it, it, something wasn't clicking there and the time we were putting in just didn't make sense. So that's why I thought, okay, we really have to look at the profitability, what makes sense, where are our biggest struggles? And that's why I realized going into things that what would make more sense is a shift 
into working with travel advisors and a shift into the marketplace so that we could help others and expand our sales channel through that approach. Yes, I think even though I thought I had a business plan and the profitability right, when I really looked at like my time, the value of my time and what I wanted to do with it, I found other things that had much more potential for growth. And that just came from having to live through it and realize, yeah, that wasn't working. And I know so many travel planners and so many travel advisors do incredible work and have six figure plus businesses. It just, uh, something wasn't clicking for me there and for the way we were doing it. So we found this to be a better way of working. Mm -hmm. And I initially didn't want to connect too much with other travel advisors, other women travels groups. I saw them as competition. I thought, okay, you have to network for sales. So connect with another women's type business. But I realized how important it was to connect with people in my own industry to learn from them and how generous so many people are with their time. And specifically women, when I tell them about what Shafari is about, when I tell them about the concept, they're so willing to introduce me to people, to give their time and, and help with things, to give their you know honest feedback. One of my favorite books that I have right here is My Million Dollar Women by Julia Pimsler, who's the language pioneer. So she has little Pims and stuff. But anyway, one of the biggest things she says is that it's important for women to be honest with each other. Don't sugarcoat it. Say what they can do better. Give that feedback, that kind of sometimes criticism as well. But it's helpful. Right. So it's nice to hear, hey, I don't really think that'll work with advisors for ABC reason. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're right. So then be it changing our commission model or how we work. Yeah, I think... I underestimated the power of turning to people within my own industry. And Mm -hmm. as cliche as it may be that collaboration over competition, it's really what we're all about and what fuels us. I love to highlight other women, even competitors in our, our newsletter. We have, it's called She Shines. We put in every newsletter to our clients. I just feel like there's incredible power with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's and it's hard, like ego, it's hard to overcome. I I had mm-hmm. that in my business when I, I first started a community acupuncture clinic and I didn't want to talk to the competition or I did and then they didn't want to talk to me. That happened in one case. Mm-hmm. And then further on down the road, the person who didn't want to talk to me came to me and we had this great conversation about it. And and she was like, oh yeah, I'm sorry. And we became, you know, friendly. Mm-hmm. And then the woman that I didn't want to talk to, I ended up hiring and she, and we're still friends. Like we talked last week. So yeah, it's just yeah. interesting how you can overcome that, but it's like this ego fear, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. And same thing, like we'll be talking and realize that there's a section of my business that I might not be very strong at and, and refer clients her way. And she might have a lot of these people who are quote unquote competition, but they'll send me their grease business, but then I can still reward them out of that as well. So it's nice that we've found a way to work together. And some of us do co-branded trips together. So yeah, I would say that was something I wish I would have done a little sooner, realize the power in that for sure. Yeah. yeah but you're doing it now. Yeah. <laughs> Never too late. Everything's so personal is one person might connect to this other travel group and one person mm-hmm. might connect to, yeah. And then, yeah. so the name that the, the Shafari name, is that for 
for female safari? Is that where it came from? Yeah, we wanted an intentionally kind of fun, cheeky word. So it's like a she safari because a safari is another word for a exotic expedition. It's a journey. It's Swahili for journey. So we wanted to have something that was a fun, easy word that we could actually call our trips. So they are shifaris. You're going on a shifari. So people said, girlfriend, get away a lot. But the term that just doesn't resonate with everybody. And yeah, so we wanted to brand it as shifari. And so then do you do them in Africa too? We are going to be launching some there. Yes, we haven't yet. We wanted to begin for our shafari signature. So those are the trips we run. Given our proximity with Europe and the places of Thailand, where there are certain places we're more comfortable with to start and run ourselves. But we are bringing some in for the marketplaces and some future collaborations that we definitely want to do Africa. It's such an incredible place. So yeah, we'll be adding that for sure. Okay, good. And have you been there? I have not. No, me neither. I think I've been to I've been to more European countries than I have American US states. <laughs> and I've been to a lot. But I've yeah, I've just I've been very drawn to Europe. And then obviously, when I was living there, that was my base. But yeah, there's still a lot on my bucket list of, of places that I want to go. Yeah, for yeah, sure. the world's it's so huge. Yeah, I'm a Europhile. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm obsessed with Europe. That's yes. where I was going every year when I could and since I was young. So yeah, love it. Is there anything else that I haven't asked that you wanted to say? I did have a brief minimalist stint where I was in basically a very small kind of like a one bedroom, like a studio. And so I got really creative with my bookcase, dividing my bedroom, roll out everything under my bed. And it was nice. I just purged a lot of stuff and lived a lot more simply. And I think that was a big thing for my husband, like coming from Greece was these houses are humongous. Why does everybody have three cars? Because Europeans, and I can speak for most Europeans, especially Greeks, just work to live and enjoy the outdoors and enjoy their long, slow vacations with their families over the summer. And there is a minimalist aspect to that. Their apartments are small and most people live in condos and and tall buildings. So they don't have the yard and the space, let alone the theater room, the game room. So many things that I think a lot of um, Americans have with the space of their homes. So yeah, we, my husband and I have said, cause we do want to travel. We both are, you know, entrepreneurs that we said, okay, let's try to keep the house like simple and small. And yeah, that's, we ha- I love, I think Europeans do that yeah. for sure. Yeah, I agree. And Asian cultures too. Oh yes. That's a whole nother level. (laughs) I haven't been there, but that's so incredible. The, where they store things and all these solutions. I love, that's why I love that tiny house nation, just the feats of engineering and what they can come up with. And I think the pandemic has lent that to, to us as well, because it's okay. Here's a office in a bedroom, office in a closet, office in whatever. I think I read that people only use 50% of their home. Oh, yeah. Or something like that. 50 to 60% of your home goes unused on a regular basis. Oh, yeah. So you could scale down 50% by just having multi purpose rooms and spaces. So that was something we were mindful of. Okay, it doesn't have to be this sprawling place, it can be a little more snug and just smarter use of the space. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was listening to one of the guys who is a van liver, van van dweller and a big well-known guy in the community. And he was saying that really we we only use the couch and the kitchen. <laughs> and it's true. When I was thinking about moving into a tiny home, my friend would say, how are you going to do that? And I, I would look at her and say, I'm sitting on a couch. Like you can sit on a couch anywhere. There's no difference. But I have my living room is my office, my living room, my you know dining room, my workout room. And it's fine. It, to- it works great. I do have 750 square feet, which to me is a lot. Right. <laughs> hey, it is. Yeah. So I liked what you wrote for if you could give your 10-year-old child self one piece of advice now, what would it be? Oh, yes. It's funny. I think about that. And I think it's interesting that we go through this full circle experience. So I would say that if I were to tell my younger self some advice, it would be to really hold on to that like unbridled imagination. Because as we get older, we're told about limits, the way things are done, the way things need to be done. We're given kind of pretty restrictive ways of thinking. And I feel like entrepreneurship, which just sparks and lights me up in so many different ways, is it's just someone trying to change the world in some way. And we're trying to undo that box that we've trapped our creativity in as an adult. So it's returning to that childlike sense of dream limitlessly and think of all the possibilities. Because if you're really going to succeed in something like I love Renee Mobborn's theory, it's called Blue Ocean, where it's, okay, think of everything that a business should be and strip away all the things that you're told it has to have, but it really actually doesn't. Think about essentially what the customer wants. And you're creating a blue ocean, meaning it's you don't even have competitors because you're offering something so different. And that's really hard to do in tourism. And when I approach some travel advisors who have been in a consortia or in a host agency for 20, 30 years, they're like, yeah, they're really, I don't really think there's an audience for this. And I'm like, just because there's never been an offering to travel advisors for these unique kind of women's trips doesn't mean there isn't a market for it. Or they'll say, oh, people don't really come to me for that. Do you have, have you had the product to offer them before? Have you had that as an option? And I think there's, I think it was Damon Johns or some entrepreneur said something um, along the lines of, if your dreams don't scare you, then you're not, they're not big enough. I've also heard people say, if people aren't laughing at your dreams, they're not big enough. But why do we get to such a limiting point that we laugh at someone's big dreams? That's how the world has changed. So anytime I've been helping, we've all been talking through this pandemic. I have a lot of friends, not just in travel, but across the board who have lost jobs. And I'm like, what if you started a podcast or what if you did this or what? Yeah, no, that doesn't make money. We immediately start with that limiting belief. Nope, because it's never been done. That's not the way my industry does it. That's not the way I was taught to be successful. I think that if people can really just let their imagination run and see what's possible in the world, then there's still a whole lot of new innovative companies to come about for sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. I love that. My ex-husband and I started the first video game television review show in the United States. And when we started, people laughed at us. They were like, that's ridiculous. Nobody's ever going to watch it. It's never going to go anywhere. And now there's a dedicated channel to video Mm -hmm. game, the television channel that came Mm -hmm. from it. They came from our work. Wow. 
and yeah, and our work yep. was stolen and our work was borrowed and, and mm. everything. But in the mm-hmm. end, it was in a good way. But yeah, it was really, we, people were very like judgmental and yeah, and really negative. And, and we were just like, now nah, we're doing it anyway. And it became really big. So it was a niche that was not being filled. Wow. That's, it's so interesting. It brings to mind the example of Airbnb because I read a lot of entrepreneurial case studies and everything. And so the founders of Airbnb were pitching this to VCs and investors and they're like, so you have these extremely wealthy people, probably mostly men being like, so what you're saying is you want people to open up their homes to strangers because it was originally air mattress. That was the concept that they would, it was like a blow up mattress in someone's home. That was air mattress BNB. That's, I think that was what it was originally called. That's what one, one account I read. Yeah. So it was like, so you want people to just pull up a bed in a stranger's home and you want them to put photographs of their most intimate space on the internet for everyone to see. And they were like, I mean, yeah. And then it worked. I think it really came about during, I think one of Obama's elections like it it spread like wildfire through DC because everybody wanted to go for this convention and then all these Airbnbs popped up and they were able to house because the hotels were filled so it caught on but yeah as an idea it was pretty laughable to some people and it's now completely disrupted the entire industry and there are now spaces and entire businesses dedicated to creating Airbnbs only that's a great example of anything can become something. Yes. And like the older generation being my parents wrapping their heads around it. So like started staying in Airbnbs, I think in 2003 or something like around there, 2005. It was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And my mom was shocked and appalled. You are not paying to stay in a stranger's house. Right. You you will stay in a hotel. (laughs) I'm like, I'm going to stay in a stranger's house. (laughs) And probably still friends. So yeah, yeah, it's amazing what it's evolved to. But in the beginning, I can't say I would have been one of the early adopters. (laughs) But as it's, you know, grown, and I've stayed in some incredible Airbnbs in different places where they treat it like a business and they're like tour guides, and they give you amazing advice, they'll pick you up. It's yeah, they've done a fantastic job with it. And people have really embraced it. Yeah. And I think as a solo traveler, Like I will, if I'm going to convention, I'll try to get my own Airbnb. That's not a share because I mentions you need downtime, but if I'm just traveling through somewhere and I don't know anything or anyone, I want to stay with somebody who's local. And I've done that so many times and then made friends with the people and we go out to lunch and it's just, it's a great experience. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the beauty about travel. Some people want to stay in a super luxurious hotel with all the fine decor. And it's, I don't know, I love hotels. I love boutique hotels and that essence. I love the smells. And some people love that kind of stay. But isn't that great that it's such a diverse offering that everybody can find a way to travel at every level? It's really great where we've come to in travel in 2021 pandemic aside. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Pandemic aside. And I'm excited to see what so many travel companies are coming out with after this, because we've all had time to just sit and think too much. And some travel companies are coming out with really cool ideas and new concepts. So 
I'm excited to see where the industry goes after this. For those that can stand the test of time through this, which is awful for so many businesses affected by it, I really think that it will breed a lot of innovation and some really cool things on the other side. Yeah, I like that. That's very positive. Trying. <laughs> I know. So where can people find you? Yes, they can visit our websites, which is www.shifari.com as well as myths and muses spelled out.com. We are on Facebook at Shafari Travel, at Myths and Muses Travel, and also on Instagram. And you can always reach out to me directly, Christina with a CH at Shafari.com. Okay, great. And I'll put all that in the show notes. Thank you. This was really interesting. I really enjoyed the conversation and I just, uh, I love it when I hear expat stories because it's just, it just seems so, so fun. And I'm in a, like a fear overwhelm point right now with my, with the van. Cause I, I literally have four months and I'm like, oh, it's tomorrow. <laughs> and when I started the podcast, I was like, it's a year. I can't wait. It's too long. And now I'm like, it's happening too fast. So I really like hearing other people that have done it and moved and lived through it. And it's fine. It's whew, yeah. Any kind of big move, be it a major change like that, downsizing, going to another country, they're all leaps, but they're good. They're good for our development. And I love that it's at any age. I think there's a stigma that people only do it in their 20s. Yeah. No, I'm ready to do that right now. Like I'm ready to do it later in life. I applaud you for, for doing that. Thank you. What kind of, tell me a little bit, because I tried to find a little more about the podcast. How do people find you? What's your, what are your, what's your kind of readership and views like? Oh, so the website is an unknownadventure.com. And I don't know how people are finding me. I'm, just, I'm terrible at marketing. <laughs> I'm just really bad. But yeah, it's getting not a ton of views. But I think since I've started like 500 views or something like that, which I thought was pretty good. And I'm building up my Instagram slowly. I've had a problem with sticking with things. So I started blogging at the beginning of blogs, but then I didn't stick with it. And I have five pen names and then I go off on different tangents. So what kind of writing do you do? You mentioned that. Yeah. I So I've written, so I've written like 18 novels. I've published. Wow. 12. Yeah. Yeah. But they're all, 11 of them are paranormal romance and I hate paranormal romance. I don't hate it. I just not my thing. So, but you wrote 11 of them. Yeah. I thought that it was the market and I was trying to make money. Oh, but I, but I don't want to write to make money. It's my passion and I hated it. But by the end I had to take a year off and I, I just, yeah, I was miserable. So right now I'm working on a, or an urban fantasy series in a dystopian setting. And it's dark. My mother called the other day because she read the short story. She goes, you have a really dark imagination. Where did you get that from? And I'm like, mm -mm, mm -mm, not saying anything <laughs> now. <laughs> Is it Mar Margaret Atwood? Who wrote The Handmaid's Tale? Yeah, that was Margaret Atwood. Yeah. Yes. So she says that she purposely put only things that have actually happened, not necessarily to her, but like things that have happened in real life because she didn't want anyone saying, what a twisted mind she had and everything in there has been recorded or has happened to a human in some time. Yeah. So she was like, yeah, that was pretty incredible. I thought, well, that's a lot of research. Yeah. 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 I read that when I was younger and I was like, it's scary, yeah. but, it was, but it's really good. She's a great writer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'm really like my new genre and it's a lot of work. And then I'm going to write like a memoir on the travel 
cool. Yeah. Van life and then hopefully an expat or traveling Europe memoir or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll see. That's what the podcast is just like helping me process the move and, and the change. And, but then it, that's what it started as. And now I just interview people and I'm learning more than I ever thought I would. It's amazing. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Thank you so much. We will definitely have to keep in touch. I want to hear about your journeys and your travels and yes, definitely. Thank you. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, I'd love it if you'd subscribe. Leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts is also highly appreciated. You can find me and more information about AUA on anunknownadventure.com. I do try to leave extensive show notes here under the podcast, but also on my website. The notes include links to everything that's been talked about today. However, my main goal is to give back to the community, to you. So if you have any questions, please DM me on Instagram at anunknownadventure. And whether you do or don't, Following me there would light up my entire week. So remember to keep dreaming big because your adventure awaits and I can't wait to hear about it. Uh, 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 uh.